Today we have some guest speakers. I want to just trace real quick how we got to this sermon while I have the two uh, special people here this morning. Um, on June 24, 2022, Roe versus, Roe versus Wade was overturned. Um, many churches, including this one, we, we celebrated that reality. We know that it's not just a fetus in the womb, but a child of God, the image of God that is in the womb. Yet for, for decades, many Christians kind of prayed for this. They politically fought this, and then it happened, and the feeling was, you know, what's, what's next, right? Because it's not like the issue is gone, right? And so it was an opportunity for self-reflection here, even as a church. And so um, the question really for me was, you know, how can we be pro-life in a bigger way that's not just looking at the overturning of one or two laws, right? Is there a bigger vision that scripture gives for what it means to be pro-life? Our first step was to uh, call, um, uh, reach out to Door of Hope, Rachel Metzger, who is the, the uh, director there, Jim DiBiasso, Joel Porter, and I met with her. Um, she shared stories that just rocked our world from just what's happening here in our city. That led to the, the crib being in our narthex, which I just want to thank you guys again. Like, you feel it all the time, and it's like, well, can we just, like, give thanks for that? Like, applause. I mean, you guys have been so generous. Don't let that stop. Continue to be generous, right? So thank you guys so much for that. Um, and we asked for her counsel, right, on uh, just, uh, yeah, what, what are some good steps we could take to just more of a robust manner, have a vision for what it means to be pro-life, biblically speaking. Um, she she uh, directed me towards a, a sermon from Pastor Chris McGarvey from Bethel Baptist in North Wilmington that he preached some time back that she shared with him. I listened to it, realized it's a better sermon that I would ever preach on that topic. So I had lunch with him, and I said, yeah, I come to my church and preach that. And so I arranged for them both to be here this morning, which they are. So... Um, Fun fact, too, Bethel Baptist uh, came from Emmanuel Church. It's actually, we started that church like 50 years ago. So super cool to have the pastor of that church sharing our pulpit this morning. So without further ado, uh, welcome Pastor Chris McGarvey. Good morning, Emmanuel. It's really good to be with you here. And um, I count it a privilege bring greetings from Bethel, your daughter church. And actually, the only thing I would correct Daniel on there is it was 70 years ago, not 50, because um, we actually had our 70th celebration back in April. So um, that's pretty amazing. And uh, obviously, we're connected way back there. And here we are 70 years later connected again. Bethel is praying for you all, um, for us this morning. You guys were praying for Bethel, so um, we're on the same team here, and um, that's an encouragement. One thing I would say as I was thinking and praying about being here, just a quick thing before we dive into our, what we're going to consider this morning, is let's not think that the best days of our churches are behind us. So Ephesians 3.20, God's in the, the equation. So the God that we sung of is in the equation here and on the north side and everywhere. Now to him who is able 
to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us in that prayer it's the power of the spirit the power of the living Christ exercised through the spirit to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations including this one and including the ones to come forever and ever amen so I ran across this prayer years ago. Um, I think it was by David Brainerd, missionary to Indians a couple hundred, of, hundred years ago here in, actually not far from here, um, New Jersey. And I've prayed it quite a number of times for myself because oftentimes I feel pretty small. Our church is, you know, I don't know, it's all relative, right? But um, he wrote, Lord, use me in a way that is totally out of proportion with who I am and then apply it to the church. Lord, use us in a way totally out of proportion with who we are. We're small, but you know what? The Lord Jesus is a king and savior who can take a little kid's lunch and feed thousands. So, so we can trust him to do that, and let's, let's trust him to do that through us. So I want to begin with a quote by a guy named Russell Moore. Um, not sure if any of you have ever heard of him. He's an American theologian, ethicist, and preacher. Um, he's done a number of things over the years, but um, actually just earlier this year, he became the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. Maybe you're familiar with that magazine. So he's spoken powerfully to the issue of the sanctity of all human life, and certainly life in the womb, over many years, and he wrote this insightful quote. Any Christian witness that doesn't start and finish with the gospel is unspeakably cruel and, in fact, devilish. The devil works in two ways. By deception, you shall not surely die, Genesis 3, 4, and by accusation, Revelation 12, he's the one who accuses the brethren day and night before our God. He loves to wag his finger. So the devil wishes to assure some people that there's no need for repentance and others that there's no hope for mercy. Some people are deceived into thinking they're too good for the gospel, while others are accused into thinking they're too bad for the gospel. And then he writes, no one is more pro-choice than the devil on the way into the abortion clinic. And no one is more pro-life than the devil on the way out of the abortion clinic, heaping guilt and shame. The gospel of Jesus Christ tears down both strategies. So you see that twofold strategy deceive you into thinking that, you know, you don't have any other choice, that's what you've got to do, that it's not wrong, that there, it's not sin. And then once you do, he turns on you and condemns you. Certainly that's true for abortion, but any sin, really. So you think about the younger brother and the older brother in Luke 15. He goes and just does whatever he wants. And that was, that, that's certainly Satan's strategy to get us to live like that. But also, Satan would be active in the older brother heart, the self-righteous heart as well. So Satan's behind both license, like sinful freedom, and legalism, right? Um, so anyway, 
the title of the message is Safe for Sinners, Not Safe for Sin. That comes from a guy named Justin Taylor. The church should be a safe place for sinners without being a safe place for sin. So I've got two points this morning. Really simple outline. You can keep it in your head. Safe for sinners, not safe for sin. Okay? So one at a time. The church must be a place that is safe for sinners. This is not always the reputation of the church. Oftentimes it's the opposite. So Tim Keller writes in Prodigal God. Um, it's a guy that pastored in New York City for a long time. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. That might be too simplistic. I'd probably add we might be declaring the same message, but we can unsay with our attitudes and behavior what we say with our words and our creed. Remember, Peter did this in Galatians 2. I mean, he believed in justification by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? But then, you know, Jews and Gentiles didn't get along in the first century. He had to have that vision of the sheet coming down and, you know, Peter kill and eat because he didn't want to hang out with Gentiles. They were unclean. You'd be unclean. How could I eat with Gentiles? I'm not going to be able to keep kosher. And Lord declared all foods clean. Go eat with these people. Jesus came and lived and died for people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, right? To make us one. So you would have thought Peter would have gotten that. You know, after Pentecost, he's preaching powerfully. Well, in Galatia, Paul had, he he says in chapter 2, he had to confront Peter. Because when some of these folks that believed you had to keep kosher and be circumcised, in addition to Jesus to be a real Christian he shrank back from eating with the Gentiles. Paul says, you're living like a hypocrite. You say this about the gospel and then you're shrinking back from these people? So he was unsaying with his behavior what he was preaching from his creed. And we can do the same thing. So we need to be reminded, we need to pray that God will make us individually and corporately safe for sinners, just like Jesus So I want to just show you a few passages, beautiful passages. We're not going to take a ton of time in these passages, but this is the heart of Jesus. This is the the lifestyle of Jesus. So if if you've got your Bible there, um, turn to Luke chapter 5. I should have asked this before. What version do you guys use here? NIV. Somebody throw me an NIV, and I'll read it that way. Okay. So Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. 
Luke 5, 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. So tax collectors were despised. They were traitors. So if you're poor and one of your countrymen goes in league with the Romans to exploit you and squeeze excessive tax out of you, he's a traitor to his own people. You see what I'm saying? He's like a bully, an extortioner. How do you feel about that guy? And Jesus says, follow me. And he gets up, leaves everything and follows him. And then Levi, also called Matthew, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, I love this, Gregory, I don't even know how to say his last name, some fourth century theologian, Nazianzen, to blame Jesus for mingling with sinners would be like blaming a physician for associating with sick people. Let's look at another passage, Luke chapter 7, verses 36, starting at verse 36, down to verse 50. And just notice the heart of Jesus Christ here. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. She had a reputation. She had a past. She had a lot of baggage. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? actually an interesting question. Of course he saw this woman, but did he really see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. This is common courtesies, hospitality at that time. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured out, poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. 
but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So a lot we could say, it is somewhat self-evident, but let me just summarize things in this way. Following Jesus might keep you from some bad company, but he will also lead you to keep some pretty bad company if you're following him. Becoming like Jesus might lead you to avoid some pretty bad people, but it might also lead some pretty bad people to seek you out. Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) One more passage, Luke 18. We're just staying Luke for all these passages here, just glimpses of the heart of our Savior. So Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, down to verse 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Another translation says, treated others with contempt, which actually those things go together. Self-righteousness and looking down on other people. So verse 9, he tells this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. And actually in the original, it's the sinner. Like, I'm, I am the worst of sinners. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus came not to call the righteous, those who think they're righteous in their own eyes, self-righteous, He came to save sinners. He came as a doctor of the soul. We are all soul sick with sin. And only Jesus can heal us. And so Jesus' church is obviously a hospital. It's made up of people who are absolutely hopeless apart from Jesus, whose righteousness is only in him. Any good then that's produced in us is by his grace. So how could we ever look down on anyone else? So Jesus' church must become a place that is safe for sinners. It's made up of sinners saved by grace, and it should be safe for sinners to find grace. So I'll just tease out one application, particularly in this realm of, you know, the sanctity of human life and how that ought to be addressed in the context of the local church. One application, there's countless applications. You can kind of discuss and brainstorm that over coffee with, you know, brother or sister 
in the weeks to come. So let's say one of your teen girls gets pregnant out of wedlock here in Emmanuel. Would you throw her a shower? So I've been in churches where Christian women didn't want to throw a shower because it would, could be seen to condone sin. What do you think? You don't have to answer out loud. I'll tell you what I think. I think that perspective is from the devil. What are you saying if you don't throw a shower for that girl? And by the way, I would not make it contingent on her repentance. You're saying you're not worthy of us giving you love and support. Do you want to say that? So, should you call a girl in the church to repentance and the dude, by the way? Yes, of course. Just like all sinners need to repent and trust in Jesus. I mean, repentance and faith is like breathing for a Christian, right? We need to do this every day, and certainly everybody that you rub shoulders with needs Jesus, need to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus as their Savior. And also, you would want to make sure that you're not just having somebody mouth words or just kind of, you know, behavior modification. You want heart change, right? But listen, here at Emmanuel, I don't imagine you're going to be changing your beliefs about what the Bible says about sex and marriage anytime soon. I think this is probably safe to say. Sex, you know, this is what we believe at Bethel. I think this is what you believe here. Sex is a good gift of God. It's invented and created by him. It's given as a good gift to one man and one woman who join together in covenantal union till death do they part. That's what we believe. It was what we believed at the church I was a part of, you know, before Bethel, and it's what we believe at Bethel. I think it's what you believe here. But listen, if this whole subject came up, I heard people say, you know, if, if we are going to throw a shower, have we changed our beliefs? Like I heard people asking that question, like, what gives you that idea? Why are you coming to that conclusion? I heard that more than once. No. Why would you come to that conclusion? Have we changed our beliefs? No, we're living in line with our beliefs. Because at the center of our beliefs is Jesus, the friend of sinners. So, amen. Continue to believe that sex is like fire, okay? It's the fire of God designed to warm the house. It's kept in the fireplace of marriage. Outside God's intended place, it burns things up and does damage, right? So God's design is not only right, it's also wise and good. But you know what? Some teenagers that grow up in the church are going to know that or have been taught that, and they're still going to make mistakes. Is that okay? No. But where are they going to turn when they screw up? To the Christians who don't throw showers for sinners? No, being safe for sinners doesn't mean we ignore the truth of God's design, his commands and prohibitions. It means we treat sinners like Jesus treated sinners with lavish mercy and grace and love. So you're going to throw that girl a shower? Yes. I hope you say it. You bet we are. So 
This obviously has lots of applications, you know, beyond this, um, but that's one sample implication. So the church, your church, our church must be safe for sinners and the church, our church, your church must not be safe for sin. Point number two, sin kills, right? I mean, sin's what broke this world in the first place. You know, like back in Genesis 4, when the whole Cain and Abel thing, God warned Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It's like a lion that just wants to dominate you and tear you apart. Sin is not something to toy with. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So we can't strike a truce with sin. I mean, if we're going to love people well, we can't coddle or ignore or minimize or justify or rationalize or turn a blind eye to sin. So certainly abortion is sin. You know, it's a blight on our nation, right? And even though Roe v. Wade is overturned, you know, it's back to the states and who knows, you know, where everything is going to settle out, this is still going to be an issue. All around us, the world is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Right? Like all around you, you rub shoulders with people that, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of euphemism used when speaking of this thing that is really horrible. It's murder. It's genocide. So we should call it what it is, right? We don't want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I remember earlier this year, um, my son, youngest son, we have five kids. My wife is right here, Beth. Um, we have five kids, oldest 22, youngest is 10. He'll be 11 on Wednesday. And we went ice skating. So do daddy-daughter dates with the girls and do time with the boys. And we, we, he wanted to go ice skating. Um, so we went down to the Fred Rust ice arena down at UD and as we were driving home you know it's right near campus it's basically on campus you drive through campus and there's Planned Parenthood right on the left hand side as we're driving out so he he's 10 years old and I explained to Ben what they do there so we have five kids this is the first time I've explained and been the one to tell a child for the first time what abortion is. Have you ever done that? It's like a splash of cold water on your, like it was on my face, as well as for him. It's a helpful exercise. Because to say what it is, is like, whoa, this is happening right there. It's happening right in there. I mean, he's just horrified. What? That happens in this world? Yeah, but isn't it so easy to just kind of go on as if this is not happening? Like right down the road, this is happening, and we live oftentimes just kind of oblivious, like it's not happening? Can you imagine if there was a thing going on in Wilmington or down at UD where five-year-olds were being killed? Like this would be front-page news. This would just be crazy. You know, it's just so shocking, right? But we can just kind of go along like it's not even in our minds. So the church needs to speak up about it, right? Boldly, prophetically, lovingly, 
pointing out the truth. Someone has to stand up in our culture and say that the emperor has no clothes, okay? So we shouldn't be ashamed of being pro-life. We shouldn't be silent out of fear of repercussions, whether that's in the workplace or in our family or friend groups or whatever. We can point out contradictions. We should become equipped to ask good questions. So I'm not talking about getting like snarky and strident and cranky and nasty. Like sometimes questions can be the best way to try to really engage with someone and help them question their own beliefs. So just a for instance here. What if you asked, like this comes up and you might, oh, don't go there. What if rather than just kind of becoming strident and caustic and whatever, what if you said, you know, isn't it interesting, like, why do so many people in our culture mourn miscarriage and yet reject the personhood of the fetus in the womb? So, so here's like a, like a really um, stark example. I remember reading about this in the news. So John Legend and Chrissy Teigen, you guys know who these people are, pop icons, um, power couple, American cultural landscape. You know, he's a singer, songwriter. She's a model, TV personality. So back in 2020, at the end of 2020, they had a, a miscarriage. And here's what Chrissy Teigen wrote. We're shocked and in the kind of deep pain you only hear about, the kind of pain we're never, we've never felt before. We were never able to stop the bleeding and give our baby the fluids he needed despite bags and bags of blood transfusions. It just wasn't enough. We never decided on our baby's names until the last possible moment after they're born, because they've got other kids, just before we leave the hospital. But we, for some reason, had started to call this little guy in my, in my belly Jack. So he will always be Jack to us. Jack works so hard to be a part of our little family, and he will be forever. We're so grateful for the life we have, our wonderful babies, Luna and Miles, for all the amazing things we've been able to experience. But every day can't be full of sunshine. On this darkest of days, we will grieve. We will cry our eyes out. We will, we will hug and love each other harder and get through it. So this all happened like halfway through her pregnancy, maybe about 20 weeks. The BBC News wrote, the couple were flooded with message of, messages of condolence and support on, their, on social media, with many praising their strength for sharing their grief and some recounting their own experiences of loss. The Washington Post wrote, Christy Teigen revealed late Wednesday that she lost her baby boy after being recently hospitalized for bleeding issues related to her third pregnancy. While it's unclear how the baby was lost, the baby was lost. Stillbirth and infant deaths in the United States are not uncommon, and it goes on and on, okay? So what makes the difference between that and how things are talked about, say, on Planned Parenthood's website? It's just a clump of tissues that will be evacuated, emptying the uterus. What makes the difference? whether it's wanted or not? Is that it? Like, can you imagine asking someone humbly, graciously, but honestly, do you see what's going on here? Is it a baby or is it? And how is that determined? Just by whether the parents want the child or not? Or does that being, does that fetus in the womb have personhood and therefore rights? that should be protected as this vulnerable human being. 
could give other questions. Maybe just one more. Oftentimes, you could say, why is the woman's body pitted against her baby's body? So there are two bodies. There are two humans with rights. Two humans to care for and protect. Ask that question. Get people to think and talk about what they believe and why. I mean, the church, some Christians can be shrill with pro-life rhetoric, and it sounds more like we hate pro-choicers than we love women and babies. And let me add that sometimes the pro-life movement hasn't cared as well for the women as they should. And certainly the people that you bump, bump into and rub shoulders with They think that's true of all pro-life or anti-choice by their description people, that you care about the fetus, but you don't care about the pregnant woman. Let's be a part of making it impossible to believe that narrative. So let's not be ashamed to be pro-life and let's not be silent. We need to be prophetic and bold in the face of, this is, there's their spin and propaganda. We need to tell the truth. But we also need to realize that there's more than one way to suppress the truth. We can't decry the suppression of truth and unrighteousness out there and all along be suppressing it in here. Sin is not just sexual promiscuity. Sin is not just abortion. Sin is also self-righteousness, judgmentalism, gossip, slander, etc. So listen. The church being not safe for sin is actually part of how it becomes a safe place for sinners. Are you tracking with me? The church being not safe for sin like self-righteousness, judgmentalism, gossip, slander, is part of how it becomes safe for sinners. So part of being safe for sinners means we're making war with, we're crucifying, we're putting off self-righteousness, gossip, slander, shaming, avoidance, judgmentalism. And instead, we are putting on, by the grace of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, Honesty, transparency, confession, repentance, humility, log before spec, burden bearing, compassion, sensitivity, not running away from suffering and sin, but running to the need and bringing the light of Christ and the grace of Christ and the love of Christ and the compassion of Christ to the needs around us. So it's both and, not either or. Think about Jesus at the woman, with the woman at the well. He both exposed her sin and he loved her in a way that was like totally shocking and countercultural. So let's be bold with the truth and lavish with love and mercy and grace and compassion. Let's expose the propaganda and offer the shame covering, guilt removing, forgiveness and cleansing that only Jesus can give. So let me just end with an illustration I heard a pastor share years ago <clears throat> and then I think Rachel's going to come up. So 
this pastor said this, my life in Christ has not been without some God-ordained irony. I was transplanted to Texas from the Bay Area. Texas is the Bible Belt, right? Everybody's a Christian there in name. My mother had a deep faith. My father wanted nothing to do with it. When we moved towards Houston, a young man on the football team began to share the gospel with me. Christ radically redeemed and saved my soul, and I became a bold evangelist despite the fact that I didn't know anything. It was evident that the Lord had his hand on me. My friends would come to know the Lord, but it didn't take long before my passion for the gospel um, to see lost men and women saved started to rub against or collide with the church. So it wasn't very long, and I can give you dozens of stories where I decided that if if I was going to do this, it wasn't going to be done in the church. And this is the one that did me in. It was my freshman year of college when I randomly sat next to a 26-year-old single mother coming back to school to try to get her degree. She'd never been to church. She didn't know Jesus. We began talking about the grace and mercy of Christ on the cross. Me and some other friends and I would go over and babysit her daughter and try to talk with her, trying to serve her and explain spiritual things to her. Um, He says she was actually in an extramarital affair at the time. Um, a friend of mine was in a band playing at a church in the area. We invited her to hear him. She agreed. We listened to my friend play. He was amazing. And then this minister gets up and says, today I want to talk to you about sex. And I immediately go, uh-oh. And he took a red rose, smelled it, and showed how pretty it was, and then he threw it out in the crowd. There was like a 1,000 high school and college students and told them to smell the rose and touch it and feel the texture. And then he says, he, he then began one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I've ever sat through. It was fear-mongering at its best. You don't want syphilis, do you? And everyone is smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lips. And I'm thinking with this lady beside me, what are you doing? And as this guy wraps up, he asked, where's my rose? Some kid brings it back up and the rose is all broken and jacked up. And he lifts it up and his big point, his crescendo of his sermon, was to hold the rose up and say, who would want this rose? So you know what he intended. Nobody. And anger is rising up in the heart of this guy that wrote this thing. And he wanted to say, Jesus wants that rose. That's the point of the gospel. Jesus wants the rose. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So he's like, you aren't even teaching the basics of the gospel so he was like I'm done I'm out this is the game I don't know how to play it and he just you know kind of did some itinerant ministry grew very bitter toward the church and angry he's like nope but here's the irony he started to study the bible further and see the centrality of the local church and God's plan and he said okay maybe I should pastor but you know what I don't want to be in any church in this area I don't want to be at a church where there would be ichthuses on the cars you know at the gas station I want to go to some secular place you know let's go to Hong Kong or San Francisco or something like that so he gathered a team and talked about what they would do and in the middle of that God ended up calling him to pastor a church in the Bible Belt 
and he's given his life to cultivate a church like that. And may we as well. A church that is safe for sinners, not safe for sin. One very wonderful and encouraging thing that happened after I preached this at our church back in January is that I got a woman, I got, a, I got an email from a woman in our church. Hello, Pastor Chris. I wanted to say how I was blessed by yesterday's service and say thank you. It's funny because I wasn't planning on going. Usually sanctity of life services are too painful for me as I'm one of the one in four women. Not a day goes by and then she's put dot, dot, dot. But yesterday was different. Thank you. I was like, hallelujah. I'm so glad that you're here and I'm so glad you felt that way after a Sanctity of Life Sunday. That's one step in the right direction of us becoming safe for sinners, not safe for sin. So, oh, that we would trust the friend of sinners and fix our eyes on him and follow him and become more like him that our churches would be and would become safe for sinners and not safe for sin. Let me pray and then Rachel, come up. God, you are so good and so, you are the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And if we want to see it in living color, in the flesh, we look at Jesus. Oh, how he loved. And how in the world were sinners like this attracted to him like a magnet. Would you please pour out your grace by your spirit on us that we would become magnetic like that, that the grace of Jesus would so radiate from our lives, the love and compassion and care would so radiate from our lives that sinners would be drawn not to us but to him, to your light and your love and your truth. So Lord, please do it. For the sake of your great and glorious name, we pray. Amen. Thanks. This is the uh, second time I've had to follow up on that sermon, and I always think, what, what, what am I supposed to say now? He pretty much got all of it. So, But thanks for having me here. Um, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Pastor Dan. Um, it does my heart a lot of good as the executive director of A Door of Hope to have more and more churches like Emmanuel and Bethel that want to plumb this this subject and it's and it's hard it's a difficult topic and um, I know for a door of hope that's been here for 41 years around the corner for all of you that one thing I I can say honestly uh, for myself as the executive director is I I cannot do this work by myself um, a door of hope has eight staff members one of them sitting here Lori our nurse manager and um, 
we can't handle the 275, 300 women that come through our doors every year by ourselves. We need the church, and the women that we minister to need the church. But we need to have churches that we can send them to that believe these things, right? That can handle this almost balance beam type of subject where you don't want to fall off on either side. You want to minister grace and healing because so many women and men need healing. But at the same time, we want to be able to be truth tellers um, that don't muddle politics and, and wordsmithing to ease people's conscience. So we need to find that balance in there. And I'm, I'm grateful for this sermon series uh, and for Pastor Dan for wanting to take Emmanuel here because you're around the corner from us. And what a beautiful thing to be able to say to a girl that, that is wrestling with these issues. I know a good church where you could go because we can't, we can't be the church to her, right? She needs family. She needs community. He needs family. He needs community. And you can't do that by yourself. And so we need churches like this to keep going here on these topics. It, it means a lot to me. Right, so kind of the, the way that Pastor Chris talked about it, abortion is like walking on a balance beam. I know we feel that way at A Door of Hope. What do I mean by that? We don't want to compromise the truth. Uh, there's a lot of bad science out there lately trying to convince us that this is not a baby, this is a baby, and, and when you end its life, it is murder. But at the same time, we need to really start understanding women and men and why they do what they do right? You have to go into those places to understand, kind of like how you did last week in talking about the transgender community, what, got, what gets us here, right? And for, for us at A Door of Hope, in most cases, not in every case, we have had to learn to be better listeners than we are talkers. In fact, I say it over and over to my staff again, if you are talking too much in the counseling room, you know, I need to ask yourself why. You should be listening a lot. Okay, and if, if there was a skill for you to develop, that would be the one that I would highly recommend. It doesn't mean never saying anything, but it means doing a lot of listening. Why is that? Well, the abortion narrative that we get fed a lot in the, in the media is that Women are making a choice out of a position of empowerment, and I've yet to really see that in the thousands of women that we see coming through a door of hope year after year. In fact, most women will tell you that the decision they made was, you know, and it was a compromise to appease the people around her and her own circumstance. It is very rarely a decision made out of multiple choices and empowered. So in other words, in most cases, the decision and the narrative is the same. I didn't know what else to do. I, I didn't have any other option. This is what my boyfriend wanted me to do. It's what my mother wanted me to do. I don't have money. I don't have a place to live, right? All these things lead to a decision that really isn't a choice, right? Because when you only have one choice, that's not a choice. And yet we hear in, in society a lot, this empowers women, it's, it, it improves the lives of women, even though since, since Roe versus Wade, the lives of women have actually not improved. That We see they're more economically, more emotionally, and more socially 
deprived than they've ever been prior to 1973. A perfect example, we had a client who came in a couple of weeks ago. She's on her second pregnancy. She has a 18-month-old. She was heavily contemplating abortion. In fact, I'm not quite sure if she did or not. I have to follow up with, with our staff. But um, we asked her why she was considering this, and she said, well, I've been living with the father of my children, the father of the, the, her toddler and the father of this baby, and she, and she said, I've been with him since I was 16 years old, and he's, we, now she was about 26, 27, and is just abuse after, she's a chronically abusive relationship. He abuses her routinely, and she, and she said, I just cannot bring one more child into this home. And you know what was sad about that, and if you start to plumb why women stay in abusive relationships, she was choosing him, her abuser, over that baby, which that comes in with a whole lot of complicated emotional, psychological reasons why women stay with their abusers, right? So, you know, where's the choice in that? I don't know. Um, But I do know that more often than not, it's the people outside of that woman's lives that are being empowered by abortion than hers. Because I don't see where the empowerment was in her choosing that and staying with that man. And so we at Adore of Hope become seekers of of being a good listener. That's what we want to do. In fact, we have... A set, not, this is to God's glory, this isn't, this isn't peep because of us, but we have a, we've discovered about a 71% change of mind rate at a door of hope. So 71% of the women who are considering abortion or abor- what we deem abortion vulnerable after they've sat with our counselors, people like Lori, uh, 71% of them carry. Um, and if you wanna know how that happens, we, it's because we're listening and showing compassion and showing empathy, right? Which is something all of you could do. And I, I feel strongly that that's the key to what will make this church a safe place for a woman who's either contemplating an abortion or has had one. So I encourage you, Emmanuel, to stay on this track and to keep plumbing this and to keep going there, if you will. Um, so I think Larry has some slides for us. I, I wanted to share a few things with you, then I'll be done. Um, it's exciting. This is an exciting time for me to see the church going in this direction, and I think it would be a good thing for all of us to kind of sit back, even for myself, and do some careful reflection on kind of where has the church been on this issue, where are we, and where could we go? Because I really do believe that the church could be the new place for women who are either contemplating abortion or have had one, men as well. And so I think the key thing for you to know is this. One in four women in the United States has had an abortion, and when they're, that, that number doesn't change in the church. It's the same statistic. And so I'm not surprised at all to hear that after January there was a, a parishioner at Bethel that made that email. It's I, it happens every time. So I want you to know that I'm aware even of the statistics in this room here. And if that's something that you've struggled with or are struggling with, know that, one, a door of hope is a place for you. We do have an abortion recovery program, but also know that I think Emmanuel wants to be a safe place for you as well. And I hope that you would take advantage of that. Um, 
So this was a research that was done by an organization called CareNet, which is an alliance of pregnancy care centers. In 2016, they did an extensive study on post-abortive women. And I, it's a long study, and I'm not going to go through all of it, but I encourage you to kind of, when you go home and you're praying on this, and, and Emmanuel, when you're thinking about how you might want to be here in Wilmington, a church that's a safe place for women who've had an abortion, th think about this. So that study that was done in 2016 on post-abortive women, maybe this is surprising for you to know that more than one in three women who, have, who did this study and had had an abortion were attending church at least once a month during the time that they had an abortion. So that's a regular church attender. And by and large, at A Door of Hope, most of the women who come into our center identify as Christian. We do have some Muslim women, some Hindu women. We have, you know, various pagan religions that we come across. But by and large, most women will tell us that they're Christian. And a lot of them are regular church attenders. So that means that's happening here, right? And that's why these sermons are important. We need to stay strong on what the truth is, but also be a place where she might be able to work this decision out here, right? Maybe you won't need a door of hope anymore. That you automatically go to the church to work these issues out. Okay, next slide. Um, I want to throw this one out because this is this is the important part of where you as a church need to understand women who seek out abortion and why they wrestle with this. What is going on, right? Now, granted, there's obviously factors like, you know, careers and school and those types of things, and those certainly play a role. But we see this anecdotally at A Door of Hope all the time, and uh, I wasn't in the least bit surprised when, when this study said that the biggest factor in a woman's decision to have an abortion, we're going to show you another, the next slide, in other words, the biggest influencer on her decision is, by and large, the father of the baby. Either because he wants that or he is, doesn't want that, right? He doesn't want anything to do with her, right? And we see this over and over and over again in the door of hope. By and large, it's one of the biggest factors. When, when the father of the baby and, and, and the family of that girl can come around them and support them, by and large, Adore Hope doesn't have much to do. We just say, congratulations, here's some diapers, right? But if he does not want it or he is pressuring her, then by and large, you'll see her make the decision to have an abortion. Or, or like in the case of the woman who I just told you, is this you know, abusive situation. So it kind of like begs this question, does, does abortion really empower women? right? I don't know. It's, it's something to consider. Obviously, there's other influencing factors, but by and large, most women report that the person that they talk to about the decision to do this or, or influence them. The next slide, this one kind of goes there too. Oh, go back one more. Nearly four in, in ten women indicate the father of the baby was the, was the most influential decision then a medical professional, and then a, a mother. That's a big one, too, that we sometimes have to deal with at A Door of Hope. The mother of the girl is a, it, next to pressure from the father of the baby is, is pressure from your mom. Um, we, I had a client that we have, a, she's actually 
thank God, decided to enroll in our HOPE program. At, about a month ago, or maybe six weeks ago, I came into work early. I was there at about 7.30 in the morning. It was pouring down rain, and there was a girl sitting in her car in, the, in our parking lot. She was sobbing, and I'm like, well, I guess we're starting work a little early because we don't open till 9. But I, I had her roll down the window, and I said, are you here for us? And she said, yes. She's sobbing, and I said, you pregnant? And yes. And I, and I, don't, I don't counsel. Um, I have people like Lori, and people are way better at it than I am. But I thought, well, I'm going to at least hold on to her until everyone gets in here. So I sat down with her, and pregnant from an affair, um, had had a boyfriend that she broke up with that she tried to get pregnant with, now pregnant by an affair. Two things. Father texting her as we're sitting there. The father of the baby texting, I'm going to give you the money, get rid of it, give you the money, get rid of it. And her mother said that she would kick her out if she didn't do this. And I thought, where, where's her choice? Where's her choice? And I, I feel for her because you feel like, where is she going? She's 20 years old, and uh, she had a terrible story of, lot, uh, I won't even go there. She had a terrible story about her childhood, a lot of trauma. We see a lot of traumatized women, women who have been trafficked, women who have been abused, neglected. And um, in those cases, in that in instance, it was classic, father of the baby mother of her, her mother pressuring her. Next one is, um, despite what Pastor Chris has said, a lot of women struggle with how the church would be relevant to them and their situation and their, their circumstances, right? So about half of those women said, who had had an abortion agreed that a pastor's teaching on forgiveness doesn't seem to apply to her for some reason. Now, it could be because she doesn't understand it or because she thinks she's outside of God's forgiveness. Could be both, or either or. Uh, next one is, this is another one. This is really important to me and to the staff at Adore of Hope, is that over half of women who've had an abortion agree that the church oversimplifies their decision, right? They, they bake it in very black and white terms, right? She did this because she's this. No, you would be shocked. It, the story's the same overriding all the time, but different circumstances. In the case of that girl, it was not only that, but her father had been murdered by the police, and there was just this long story of just trauma after trauma after trauma, right? only 20 years old and already had lived more life than I could at 50. I just shocked at how, what she's been through. And this right here, here in Wilmington. We need to be good listeners and, and people of compassion that understand that we're dealing with a very traumatized group of people. Next one is, twice as many women would not recommend to someone close to them that they discuss their decision regarding an unplanned pregnancy with someone in the local church. Now that's discouraging news, right? Don't talk to those people. They'll just judge you, right? And they're not going to help you and they'll oversimplify your situation. That's a hard no, right? So there's, there's work to be done. But that doesn't mean, and I agree with Chris, it doesn't mean that we're on the, the waning side of the, the influence of the church in our culture. We could turn that with sermons like this and this type of attitude. It, you could see the tide turn. So next one is, here's some things that are like on the upswing encouraging. So I don't want you to completely lose hope and say, oh, the church can't win this back. 
what they did do is they started to kind of pluck out women who, who in this survey, who identified as evangelicals, right? Um, and things kind of switched a little bit. And they asked those women who identified as evangelicals, reported 71% of them said that it was safe to talk to their pastor about abortion. We need to see more and more pastors that are safe places like that. And, and lay leaders in the church can't just be all on the pastor. 76% of evangelical women who took that survey said that God will, was willing to forgive past abortions, which is true. 70% of evangelical women's, women who took the survey said that churches are a safe place to talk about pregnancy options, including parenting, abortion, and adoption. And sometimes, you know, I'm an adopt, a mother of two adopted children, and you have to be careful. Sometimes in the church, it's very easy to say, well, just place that baby for adoption. If it, life was so simple, and, and it's not, and a lot of people would be surprised that most of our clients do not choose adoption. There's reasons for that, and you can talk to me afterwards, but that's what I mean about making it a little too simpli simplistic in black and white. 59%, a little lower, churches get, said that churches give accurate advice about pregnancy options. Once again, it's kind of this kind of making the situation a little too simple. You need to work on that aspect of things, but 73% um, identifying as evangelical reported that churches are prepared to provide material, emotional, and spiritual support to women who chose to keep a child resulting from an unplanned pregnancy. And that would be the high note that I'd want to end with you all is even into what Chris said is, how, how is this church, and I don't know what this church is going to do, but how is this church going to prayerfully consider being a place where a woman who has experienced an unplanned pregnancy or a man that's experiencing unplanned pregnancy be able to come here and find the community support and love that they need? That's what makes the church what God intended it to be. And I'll be thrilled because not only do I, I know I have a safe place to send that client, but also to know that a door of hope doesn't have to bear that burden of work all on our shoulders ourselves because we can't do that. And we're a crisis place at best. So I want to personally thank Emmanuel for your support to a door of hope and then these cribs, that, I mean, I'm seeing you guys almost once a week, which is extraordinary. We don't usually see that, and I, I love that. And FYI, we need size three diapers, if you're kind of wondering what we need. If you send the next time you're out, that's, we seem to have a run on certain sizes, and that's what we're low on. But this means the world to client. It means everything to know that, like the young girl that um, I found in the parking lot, she is going to carry. She's moving out of her house, and she's going to move in with her sister-in-law, who is now the ex-wife of her brother. It's just a long story. But God bless them, they're going to stick it out. Um, but she's not, she's going to do that by herself, and she's going to single parent. And when a door of hope can become sort of this material support for her, that's you, the churches make that possible. So I want to thank you for that, and, and God bless you, and thank you for your Feel free afterwards to come up and ask me any questions. I'll stick around, so thank you. Thank you.